Welcome back to the Love Your Story podcast. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Janelle Green. Now, what you see when you look at Janelle, the creator of Culture Tracking, is hundreds of beautiful photos of her travels all over the world. She is snorkeling in beautiful blue waters and standing on top of mountains. She's laughing at the camera and with her beautiful smile. And as always is the case, the story goes deeper. Culture Trekking was created by this vivacious young woman as a way to survive a brutal rape. When it came time to choose between accepting her fear as the new status quo of her life, or making a strategic choice to choose love and connection with people around the world through travel, she chose the latter. Stay tuned for my interview with Janelle for the full story. And it wouldn't surprise me at all if you don't become an avid follower of the beautiful travels of culturetrekking.com. For those listeners that may be sensitive to stories of sexual trauma, be aware we will be moving into those realms. Stories are our lives and language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee. And I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Janelle is a physician's assistant, a survivor, and the creator of the YouTube channel and website, Culture Tracking, dedicated to inspiring people to explore through cultural connections and sustainable adventures. She's also a dog lover like I am. She has two, Finn and Zoe, and of course, in her free time, she travels. Janelle, welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Excited to look forward. Well, I'm excited to look forward. I'm excited to have you on the show. I look forward to the discussion. <laughs> so I'd like to start where we always do, which is with your story. You moved from Vegas to Texas for a job. When was that? How old were you? Oh, man, that was about, let's see, six years ago, almost. And so are you from Vegas? No. So I am from Utah and I moved out to Vegas for a PA school. A play school? A PA, physician assistant. Oh, okay. (laughs) Got it. (laughs) Okay. So you were there in Vegas and then you decided, then you got a job opportunity in Texas, right? Yeah. And it was kind of one of those dream jobs. Like I'd always wanted to work in the ICU because it's like the top tier of the educational world and, you know, in the PA world of where you can work as a mid-level provider. Awesome. So as we all do, when we go to a new place, you wanted to meet new people and make friends. So take us to that story. I moved to Dallas, Texas, and I didn't know anyone. I just said, okay, this is my dream job. I'm just going to go. And as I was making my way out there, I was like, okay, how can I make friends? Like I'm a pretty bubbly person. And I am the type of person that can just say hello to someone in a cafe and like, Hey, what you eating and what you doing? And where are you from? And, you know, so I didn't feel like it would be hard for me to make friends, but for some reason it really was. So when I got out there as a job, like my job, I was working 12 hour shifts. I was staying over time. And it got to a point where I was like, I'm not going to meet anybody. 
working this much. So weird as it sounds, I ended up getting a job as a waitress just so that I could meet more people on a, you know, other waiters and waitresses. And I mean, I have a master's degree and I decided to go be a waitress just so I could make friends. Did you give up your physician assistant job? No, I was, it was another job so I could meet more people. Cause I didn't know where to meet people like in Utah and Vegas, like you can meet people wherever, but in, in Dallas, it's a lot of shopping and food and, and it was hard for me to really figure out where to meet people because I didn't really go to bars and drink. And um, and I know a lot of people traditionally meet people that way as well. So it was it was difficult. So you you kept your job, but you took on another job. Wow. So yeah. now you're really busy. Yes. <laughs> so so did you meet people? I did and I didn't. So the being a waitress, like it was, it was a bit of a culture shock for me just because it was so busy and you didn't really have time to like talk to people, but I'm not one to really like shy away from a fight. And so I kept doing it and, you know, talking to people and they would, because I didn't really drink that much, I, I tended not to get invited places. Cause that's really all people did, you know, in, in Dallas, at least the people I was meeting. So and so what about dates? You started on a dating app? Yeah. So I I went to the Fort Worth um, auction with one of my friends who drove up from Houston. Um, and I think she was feeling a little guilty because she had like convinced me that Texas was a great place to be and I'd find the love of my life there. And I think she just really cared. So she, we were at this auction with this guy going, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> all right, sold. And um, she's like, well, why don't you try, have you ever tried, you know, a dating app? And I was like, no, I just, I got catfished once and I just, I kind of hemmed and hawed about it. And then that I, I, we, I left and I went home that night and I decided, okay, I'm going to do this. You know, just, you, you can't expect things to change if you don't have the courage to change them yourself. So I got on the dating app and um, I started talking to a few people, just kind of feeling it out. And then there was one person that I started talking to and I, I found out later that it was not his real name um, that he had been using. And that's kind of where my story starts. just had like a bad relationship breakup and I had just um I had been in a long distance relationship that had just recently ended and so we were both in this like sad space you know so I talked to him for a few days and then I thought well I'll just you know I'm having some friends come over for like a little s'mores and star wars so I made a Facebook event and people responded and I was like okay well I guess I could invite this guy and, you know, it's probably not the smartest idea to have him in my house, like, when I first meet him face to face, but, you know, my friends will be there, and I just made these, like, inclusive excuses, like, and I think at the time, I was just so desperate for any kind of human connection, because I'd had so much of it in Vegas, and then it just all disappeared when I moved to Dallas, and so 
um, he ended up coming over and he brought a um, bottle of wine and a fireball whiskey, which I didn't even know what that was at the time. And, and none of my friends showed up and it was, none um, of them did. None of them showed up. Oh, wow. And, you know, I grew, you know, and this is a part of the story that I am a little shy about talking about, but I think it's important for people to know um, because it really plays into a lot of my healing is that I actually grew up Mormon. And so this was a, a Mormon group of friends and, you know, in the Mormon religion, you're always taught to like be friends and, and be inclusive. And these were a bunch of my pe like people from church that I was trying to like interact with. And I felt like I was trying to like break into this clique that was in, in this particular ward that I was in. And I just somehow couldn't break through it. So um, he comes in and again, I was so desperate for friends that he's like, okay, well, do you want me to pour you a drink? Uh, or do you, here's a drink, you know, which one do you want? I said, well, why don't we try the wine? And I was like, well, it's the first time I'm drinking. So might as well just do the wine. Cause I know what that is at least. And so I tried to open it. Of course, like you have to have a little skill to open a wine bottle. I know that now. So I struggled and he's like, well, here, let me open it for you. So he opened the drink and he goes, well, why don't you go sit down? And I think that's where I started to get a little nervous because I was like, okay, well, this is kind of weird. I don't, anyway, so I sit down and then he hands me the drink. We start drinking and um, I only got through like the first glass of wine. And like, I felt like my limbs were getting really tingly and I got really confused. And then the next thing I know, like I'm on my back and he's like, well, let me just put this here. And that's when I was raped. Um, I didn't really know what was happening. I didn't, I don't really remember that night, to be honest. I think there's, sorry, there's large parts of it that are missing because it was, um, it happened all night. And I told him I was really, I remember coming to enough to know that like I was thirsty and I said, hey, can I have a drink? Like, I'm really thirsty. And he goes, oh, here, let me pour you another drink. I said, no, I want some water. And I know that he didn't feed me water. Um, I couldn't even lift my arms enough to give myself my own drink of water. And it wasn't water. I was able to go into the bedroom as a way to try to get away from him. And he wouldn't leave. Um, and this is after all night long. Um, having him do whatever he wanted. And I remember he had like a hook, a hooked finger. Um, and I told him, you know, it hurts. Please stop, I don't wanna get pregnant. And I just remember how bad that hurt. And he said, well, let's move into the bedroom because I don't want people to hear what we're, what I'm doing to you. Um, so it was those kind of things like, and I'm a physician assistant and I feel like I'm pretty smart, you know, but it was being kind that I think really trying to be inclusive and help someone else when I felt lonely that um, really got me into trouble. So the next morning um, I finally just, you know, the only way I could get him to leave is if I left my house myself. 
and I knew I needed to go and be seen because I wasn't on birth control. Um, I knew he hadn't used condoms. I didn't know how many times like he'd pleasured himself with me and I was really afraid of getting pregnant. And so I went and got the after morning pill and um, he finally left me alone and um, he wanted to come with me to the doctor. And I was like, no, like you need to go. I said, I, I feel violated by you and I'm very angry. So I felt like because of my Mormon upbringing, like they tell you, like, you're not supposed to drink, you're not supposed to do drugs, you know, all these things. And so I carried such a weight of shame that it took me three days before I called the rape hotline. And I talked to the lady and I said, this is what happened. And she said, and I didn't call that hotline until I had to, I was working, you know, and I had a panic attack trying to examine a male, you know, penis. And I couldn't breathe. I was shaking. I felt flushed and I came into the office and this other gal that I was working with, she's like, are you okay? I said, no, I don't think I am. I don't know what's happening. And it was that night that I called that rape hotline and she goes, honey, you were raped. And, and then it was a flurry of, you need to call the cops. And then the cops came over and they were male and they came in and they were taking pictures. They took my clothing. They took the bottle. They, I mean, I hadn't showered because I was too afraid to take my clothes off. And it just, you know, I went to the hospital and there was a male at the desk and he said, oh, he's like, what are you here for? You know, in a very brusque emergency room type nurse way. And, and I was like, I was raped and here's the, I was told to come here because the cops told me we can either examine you here and take pictures in my apartment with three men around me, or you can go to the hospital and get a rape kit done. So I didn't really have a choice there either. So I went to the hospital and the rape kit was terrible. And the only way I could get through it was one, two, three, like just counting over and over and over because here's here I am, this Mormon girl, like having someone take pictures of my vagina and my exposed breasts and the bruises and the scrapes and it was really really difficult uh, I mean it's what four years later and I still remember every detail so after all of this I started into therapy and I still couldn't examine patients like it was it was a really hard time in my career. I ended up asking my chief, like, I need to be taken off the floor because I just, I can't function. And so they took me off the floor and let me do secretary work until I was able to find another job that was virtual. So I've been doing virtual care um, since that time. And I have since been able to examine patients again face to face, which has been a huge milestone in, in this whole recovery. But I decided once I moved back to Utah, which is where I found this new job, I moved in with my grandma and she's like my whole world, my whole life. And the biggest support system that I have 
you know, ever since I was a child. And I remember like drinking bottles of rum um, to the point where I would black out. I remember drinking, you know, a half a bottle of vodka a day and on the weekends and just putting myself to sleep with trazodone and all these like anxiety and PTSD pills. And um, it was all legal. So I wasn't doing anything that was illegal because I didn't want to lose my license because that would make him win, right? So um, I finally decided like one night, like totally drunk, you know, because you have to quiet those internal voices and Sometimes it's just not enough to just do therapy, you know, twice a week to quiet those internal in the internal chaos is what I call it. And my dog was on my bed and I was in my grandma's basement and it was an unfinished basement. And she started playing with something on the bed and I looked over and there was a cockroach on the bed. And I just sat there and I thought, I have to do something. This is not the life that I want. And it had been three years. And I thought, am I going to let him steal the rest of my joy? So I decided to just face the hard stuff and really get into it. And um, I, I said, okay, what can I do to survive? Like, I need to reestablish my faith in humanity. And the one thing that brought me joy in that moment was traveling. We will take a quick sponsor break and we'll be back with the rest of her story. This show is brought to you by the 21 Challenges group platform. If you are a leader of a group, any type of group, book club, network marketing, employee group, a youth group, a friend group, and you're in need of a fun, fresh, positive way to connect during this disconnected time, we've got an online program that'll create fun, stretching connection and engagement with your team. Your team will get a fully immersive platform for the 21 Challenges and weekly coaching with Lori Lee as we spend three weeks creating awesome possibility loveyourstorypodcast.com and look for the group link. Okay, so clearly it sounds like you were roofied and I want to know what happened to the guy. I'm, I'm so sorry for this experience that you had to go through. Were they ever able to catch him and stop him? They caught him. And they did bring him in and they got DNA tests from both me and him to see if they could find any kind of solid proof that he had been the one that had been there. But because I had carried this shame and of, oh, I deserved it because I had been drinking, I'd waited too long and they weren't able to find any DNA. So I received not one, but three letters from the DA saying that there wasn't any there wasn't enough evidence to prove that a crime had been committed. Not even your testimony? Not even the bruises? Nope. Nope. Nothing. 
that's not enough proof, huh? No, it's not because they said it's a, he said, she said, and you were drinking. So again, it's my fault, (sighs) but, and it's some, that is a huge part of my healing that I've had to battle for a very long time. And I have a great therapist and she said, Janelle, I said, I feel like I'm just making this up, you know, at this point, because of all these things that the court had said and all the lawyers and police and the details that I had to go over and over and over again. And she said, Janelle, when you come in here and you talk about it, you wouldn't react the way that you're reacting. You wouldn't be sitting here crying and flushed and have these circular thoughts, you know, that are so random if it was not something that was traumatic for you. So no matter what the courts say, your physiological response to it by just thinking about it is telling me that, yes, you were raped. The disturbing thing that I am seeing that aligns with so many other rape stories is the, the guilt that the women take upon themselves or the, you know, I, I shouldn't have been doing that when, when men have no right you know, to do that. Like there's not even, there's not even a question. And yet so often women take that upon themselves and it's so hard to prove and so difficult to move forward. And it's just such a messy thing. And the taking responsibility for things that had to, you know, that were the responsibility of other people, that's so common in these stories. Yeah. And I, and I think that's why, you know, I know I shared a lot of details um, of that night, but I think it's important because at some point someone, you know, and my story is mild, you know, compared to some things that other women experience and they don't get justice either. But I think it's important to share those details, um, not for the attention, not for reliving it. You know, it's, it's more just because I want people to know that maybe in my situation or other situations that they're not alone. You are not alone. And that's where the power comes from sharing these stories is for the woman who's listening to this, who's gone through something similar and knowing that she's not alone and that the things she's feeling or up against are normal, fortunately or unfortunately, you know? Yeah, for sure. Okay. So we took a break right before you were starting to talk about that place where you turned the corner and said, I, I'm not going to live without my joy anymore. So how did you transition from this space of trauma into one step at a time, being able to reclaim the kind of life you wanted? It takes a lot of courage, first and foremost. Um, It's hard to relive those moments. It's hard to, I've gone through EMDR, I've gone through a lot of therapy. And In that moment where my dog was playing with a cockroach, I decided to take control of my life again and turn it into something beautiful because I deserve more than what I was given. So I started looking into doing a travel website because it was the one thing that I knew I could still live for because, you know, exploring new cultures is a passion. Connecting with people has always been a passion for me. So I started writing. I started writing about places I'd been and trying to help people in creating those same experiences. Um, 
I went to, I ended up going to Morocco and my ex-boyfriend, he actually hooked me up with some of his very good friends. And, you know, for some reason, I trust the Muslim religion more than I do most religions because they keep their hands off you most of the time. Um, so I went out there and it was one of my first trips after the incident. And I started writing about that. And then I signed up for conferences and I, you know, uh, had someone reach out to me and say, Hey, do you want to be part of this intimate travel group of friends? And um, her name's Jennifer Coleman. And she took me under her wing and just, cause she also, um, we met at the conference, we shared a similar story. So she took me under her wing and showed me the ropes of how to reclaim my joy through connecting with people online, because that was a safe space. That was a safe way for me to do it. That led to, you know, people reaching out and helping me. Um, they didn't know my story. Jennifer was the only one that knew my story at the time. And people are good. And it's, it's hard to forget that when you're in the midst of your trauma. Um, but when you try and trust one person at a time and then add another person to that and another and another, it tends to be a ripple effect um, to the point that now, like I'm getting asked by destinations to come and, and, and have coverage of, of their city. I am highlighting people in underserved stories like the Black Lives Matter movement, the um, indigenous cultures. Um, I have interviews with people on camera because that's safe because, you know, I can videotape us interacting. So if anything happened to me, I know, you know, it's uh, I'm always coming from a place of protection, which is really sad, but it's also smart. And I, I, I love your idea of the trusting one person at a time. I think so often as we learn and go through things that healing is one step at a time. You know, even let's just say, and this isn't about healing, but if I'm working on a big project and I'm overwhelmed, I get to that point where I'm like, just one, what's the next step? That's all I need. And I really love the idea of if you don't, if you're in a space where your trust of the human race has been annihilated, choosing very carefully one person at a time to let back into that circle. That's, that's just really smart advice. I like that. Yeah. And it, it's, it gets down to the core of with every interaction, with every choice that you're making from here forward, you can either choose fear or you can choose love. And that is my whole premise is seek first to understand reach out and have the courage to know that life can get better. It's easy to choose hate. It's easy to want revenge. Being a leader in love is definitely the more difficult path. But you say that there's so much strength and peace when you reach that place. What words of hope do you have to share with people who've experienced trauma or PTSD from an ugly life experience? What do you suggest for them? I think for a long time, I felt like I was in a dark pit and that's really what it feels like um, that you can't get out of. And you're reliving this torturous thing over and over and over. But when you have the courage to take those small steps, 
when you choose love, when you choose forgiveness, it can happen if it's forgiveness of someone else or if it's forgiveness of yourself. Have you chosen Um, forgiveness? Have you been able to forgive? I think I have, and it's not in a traditional sense that I am saying I forgive him for what he did. I think in a non-traditional sense, it is I have made peace with him in my mind that what he did was wrong, but he has no power over me anymore. And I hope that he finds, like he doesn't do it again, and he finds some kind of life path that will lead him from doing those things again. You're saying you're in this dark pit and you take one step at a time. Obviously the steps you've taken have been a lot of therapy, have been a, an active choice to choose love and forgiveness over that fear and darkness. What else, what are the other steps that help you move forward? Um, human connection. I think that has been the, the most integral part and not being afraid that people are going to judge me. You have to let go of the, you have to let go of first judging yourself and then realize not everyone is going to judge you as harshly as you think they will. And that was a huge step for me. Yeah. I've, I've heard that over and over. Oprah tells a story about, about how she had a secret that she kept for a long time where her, she um, got pregnant as a young girl. I think she was like 14 and she ended up having that baby and it died, but she had kept that from everyone. It just wasn't something she shared. And she was horrified when it came out later after she was older and, and very popular. And she thought everyone was going to, you know, shun her and judge her. And that morning after it had hit the news, she walked out and all she received was, you know, either people didn't worry about it or she received support and love from people but she said she was really surprised at how little they had how little judgment came against her yeah and I think I think that's a really important thing to remember is like I carried a lot of shame because I had a drink you know and whether I was roofied or not I will never know but the fact is is like if someone is sleeping you would never go and touch them inappropriately sure it seems, if, you know, if you can't, if you lose control of your limbs and you can't get yourself conscious, I think that's pretty clear that you were drugged. Yeah. And whether I was or not, it doesn't matter at this point to me because it happened and I'm moving forward and I am strong. I wouldn't say I'm stronger because of it. I'm stronger despite that. Mm. I'm, and I might look at the world differently, but I honestly and truly feel like I am a much better and more empathetic person despite that. Oh, absolutely. Would you say that that's maybe the, what would you say is the thing that you have learned most from this horrible experience? Everyone has their own trauma and until we face it ourselves, we'll just continue to pass it on to each other. So when we, when you look at yourself and you I wouldn't say suppress those demons, but when you make peace with your own demons, whatever that may be, then it helps you move forward. 
and it helps you become more loving, helps you become more empathetic. And I'm talking my demons, I'm talking his demons, your demons, we all are passing it around. And when we, the most, you know, I was just talking to Jeff Hoffman the other day on Clubhouse and somebody asked him, he said, what is, what is the one thing that you think the world needs more of? And he said, empathy. And I just thought, hallelujah, thank you. Because I, I totally agree with him. And that is the, the one thing that I think I'm grateful for from this. So one of the quotes that you like best, it says, get comfortable with the uncomfortable and it will mold your character sh to show you your true inner greatness. Tell me what that means to you. It's very deep thought, <laughs> but it is one of my favorite quotes. And it's, it's this whole premise behind our brains are wired to protect us. That is evolutionary, evolutionarily. That is how they are wired to protect us from danger, protect us from hurt, protect us from emotional pain. So when you try to look at those things inside you, when you try to go to places that might feel uncomfortable for you or meet with a culture or um, a society that is different from yours, when you push yourself into those uncomfortable places, then it resets your brain to in a safe way to say, hey, this is a safe space. We don't need to be afraid of this anymore. And the more that you build on that, the more that you do it over and over, like we were saying that one step at a time, you'll find yourself that inner greatness that you have. You won't be afraid of how powerful you are anymore. Mm. So tell us more about culture trekking then. You, um, what is it that you do exactly and where can people find you and share it with you? So I am all over the place. <laughs> I'm on YouTube. I'm on Facebook. I have a website. I have LinkedIn, Twitter, um, TikTok, Clubhouse, you name it. And you can find me at on any of those platforms under culture trekking. Um, and, and what it is, I'm trying to create a, a community where people can share idiosyncrasies of their lives and their own stories and connect and meet up. And, and just my whole goal is to try to inspire people on the inside to help break past those internal boundaries that they may have of fear to better explore the outside and doing it through cultural connection, um, highlighting those underserved areas, realizing that we're all human um, so that we can explore and engage and find joy in life, what, whatever that may look like around the world. Well, I, from looking at the website, I can tell you that the pictures are beautiful. It looks like you're having a wonderful time. You've been to some incredible places. Um, truly, it looks like just um, a wonderful way that you go about living your life now and creating experiences and connecting. It's really beautiful. Oh, thank you so much. That's so kind of you. Just for the listeners, I under the show notes for this particular show at loveyourstorypodcast.com. I'm going to have all her social media links and website so that you know where to find her if you want to. Any final thoughts, Janelle, about either culture trekking or the things that you've learned through this experience? Anything you want to leave us with? I'll just leave you with one quote from one of my favorite Disney movies. Just have courage and be kind. Hmm. It's a good one. Thank you. <laughs>
In conclusion, one of the things Janelle wrote is, quote, when you let go of the illusion of control, things will happen to you like a tsunami wave. There's still goodness in the world. You just have to be open to receiving it. Your challenge this week is to look inside your own heart to see where you might be hiding shame or regret and take one step, just one step of courage toward healing and check in with your inner self to know what that step is. Is that step finding someone to trust? Is that step reaching out for a discussion or finding a good therapist or making a connection with another human being that that feels important to you. So check in with your inner self about what that is. Thank you for being here for this week's show. And we'll see you in two weeks for the next episode of the Love Your Story podcast. And if you like this episode, please leave us a quick review on your app. It's good karma to support.